From Washington, I'm David Schultz, and this is Talking Tax. So we've got a preview today of a really big case the Supreme Court is going to hear next month called Moore v. United States. The case started as a dispute over a $14,000 tax bill, but it could end up forcing Congress to revamp huge sections of the tax code. The plaintiffs in this case are Charles and Kathleen Moore, a retired couple from Washington State, who invested in a machine tool company based in India. The company's earnings were not distributed to the Moors, but they still had to pay taxes on those earnings because of a provision called the Mandatory Repatriation Tax in the TCJA, or the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, also known as the 2017 Trump Tax Cuts. Now the Moors are asking the Supreme Court to declare this provision unconstitutional because they say it violates the 16th Amendment, which, of course, is the one that allows Congress to create an income tax. But, as our guest today explains, there could actually be huge implications, not just for the TCJA, but for the entire tax code, if the justices side with the Moors. That guest is Reuven Aviona, a law professor at the University of Michigan who specializes in international tax issues and who filed a brief in this case. The Moors and their supporters distinguish the mandatory repatriation tax from the other provisions in the TCJA and contend it can be struck down without disrupting the rest of the tax code. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce said in a brief supporting the Moors that such concerns were badly overblown. Avi Yonah spoke with reporter Michael Rappaport about the significance of the Moore case. So what generally happened in 2017 is we went from a system where U.S. multinationals were not taxed on their foreign profits or most of them until they repatriated them, that is, sent a dividend back to the parent, to a system in which they get taxed currently at a lower rate. This is the so-called guilty regime that we've had since then. And Congress decided that uh, rather than deal with the question of whether any dividend that is going to be there in the future comes from pre-2017 earnings or post-2017 earnings, they were just going to put this one-time mandatory repatriation tax, which is a tax that actually applies whether you're a patriot or not. That is a one-time retroactive tax on all the previously accumulated close to $3 trillion of earnings of U.S. multinationals that were kept offshore precisely because uh, if you sent them back, they would have to pay 35%. And so they put in this one tax that had rates between 8 and 15%, and that was a significant part of uh, financing the TCJA as a whole. And so from now on, whenever you send earnings back, they are exempt from tax under the 100% dividend received deduction. And so here comes this, this couple from Washington State, Charles and Kathleen Moore, who had to pay taxes because of this provision on the earnings of uh, Kiesencraft, a machine tool company in India in which they've invested. And they're seeking a refund of $14,729 because they claim this tax is unconstitutional because Kiesencraft's earnings were never actually distributed to them, but they were assessed taxes on them, and they say that that's unconstitutional. Right. So they rely on Eisenhower-McComber, which is the last time the Supreme Court uh, decided that a federal income tax law was unconstitutional. That was over 100 years ago, and they read that case to imply that you cannot tax shareholders on corporate earnings unless there is a distribution, and more generally, that realization requirement is an inherent part of income as defined in the 16th Amendment, and therefore, unless you receive 
uh, cash or property, uh, you cannot be taxed on that as a constitutional matter because that's not, a, not an income tax and therefore it's not covered by the amendment. So uh, t- talk a little bit more about this realization issue that's so important here. What, what, does, what does the law say about when a taxpayer has to realize income in order to be taxed on it and when is that not necessary and how does that fit into this case? So this is, this is this, the heart of the matter. Generally speaking, uh, the tax law waits until there's a realization event in order to impose taxes, and realization is defined more broadly than just the receipt of money or property, because, for example, uh, if you have a debt instrument and you change the terms, uh, like, you know, change the interest rate or extend the term, that can be a realization event. And there are other examples like that. I mean, the Supreme Court has said that any time that there's a change in the legal relationship between a taxpayer and property, that can be a realization event. But in addition, Congress over the years, you know, for the whole century after Macomber, uh, enacted various provisions that do not depend on realization at all. And those fall broadly into two categories. One kind is situation where there is realization, but realization is by somebody else. As in this case, that is Kissenkraft, the Indian company clearly realized the income, but it's a separate taxpayer than the shareholder. And that's what partnership tax is about. Subchapter S corporation is about, and guilty taxation is about, a whole bunch of other stuff. And then there are other examples where there's actually no realization at all, and yet Congress decided to impose tax, and that would be the original issue discount rules, various mark-to-market regimes that apply to securities dealers, for example, uh, various financial instruments, the expatriation tax on people who give up your, their U.S. citizenship, etc. So those are the two broad buckets of departures from strict realization, the way the taxpayers define it in this case. As you just indicated, this case could have broader impacts beyond just the, the uh, mandatory repatriation tax itself. But let's talk about the effects of the tax itself first. Uh, as you mentioned before, the transition tax caused big multinational companies to pay hundreds of billions of taxes on their foreign earnings brought back to the U.S. when the, when the 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act changed the system. Microsoft, Pfizer, Apple, Johnson & Johnson, these companies, some of these companies pay and are still paying, in some cases, tens of billions of dollars. If the court rules in, in the Moore's favor and strikes down the transition tax, could these companies get some of that back? Presumably they could. If the tax is unconstitutional, the government doesn't get to keep the money and presumably they would get a refund and potentially a refund with interest for all the years since 2017. And that could be a massive hit to the current budget of the federal government. I mean, the, the companies were given eight years up from 2017 on to pay the tax. So some of it is still hasn't been paid, but most of it has been paid by now. And it's a significant. And the other interesting thing about that is that uh, Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, like most tax legislation recently, has been passed under reconciliation so that you don't need 60 votes in the Senate. Uh, under reconciliation instruction, they couldn't increase the deficit by more than one and a half trillion dollars. Obviously, without the mandatory repatriation tax, they would never have gotten to that number. So that's part of the so-called severability argument. That is, the question is, if this provision is unconstitutional, what does that mean for the rest of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act? And you could at least make the argument, and I'm sure there would be taxpayers who would make this argument, that it's not severable from the rest of it, simply because uh, the financing, the, the money that was raised by this provision was essential for the passage of all the rest of it. So Congress couldn't have intended to pass anything without having this provision in it. And that's going to be an even bigger mess because there's a lot of stuff in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. What are, what are some examples of the kind of provisions in the current code that could be affected? You talked about some of them earlier, uh, subpart F and guilty for uh, taxes on foreign income, 
partnership and S corporation taxes, taxes on, on, on based on mark to market valuations, and anything having to do with unrealized or undistributed income. Yes, that's that's really the the thing that's in the brief that I did with the Brett Wells and Cliff Ellis, we we mostly focused on because we are pretty sure that the court hasn't really they're not tax experts. They haven't really thought of all the broader implications for saying that realization, narrowly defined, is a constitutional requirement. But you know, I would estimate people have said about a third of the income tax code could potentially be affected. First of all, all of partnership taxation, all of subchapter S taxation, rely on taxing partners or shareholders on distributive shares without a distribution. Uh, that's how it works. And most partnerships, for example, are limited liability companies. Those are clearly separate entities. The, the partners don't own the assets directly. They can't require the company to distribute the asset back to them. So pretty clearly taxation of LLCs is on the table. And if all LLCs cannot be taxed the way they are taxed now, that is if the shareholders of LLCs cannot be taxed, that you know, implicates tremendous number, I mean, millions and millions of taxpayers who are partners in partnerships, that they're treated as partnerships, or who are shareholders in S-corporations. And then there's all of these other mark-to-market type regimes. And fundamentally, the point of the brief is that there's a large segment of income that cannot be taxed. Uh, the, the first provision like that that was enacted was back in 1937, when rich people put their money in incorporated pocketbooks, that is, shell corporations in places like the Cayman Islands, and simply put their passive income, their interest, dividends, royalties, and so on there, and did not pay tax on that. And so Congress, since it, it did not have taxing jurisdiction over a foreign corporation earning foreign source income, they said, okay, the shareholders will have to pay tax on that on a current basis. If that's unconstitutional, then you can see that the impact on rich people who can move their money offshore very easily will be tremendous. And so people have tried to estimate what the revenue losses are. I mean, these are not very precise estimates, but they range between uh, a low of something like $125 billion a year to much higher numbers, uh, something like $570 billion a year. That would be a third of all uh, federal receipts from the, from the individual income tax. It's mind-boggling. That's actually what I was just about to ask you about. If the court rules for the Moors, do you think we are, in fact, uh, in for a lot more litigation and a lot more uncertainty when it comes to enforcing some parts of the tax code that have long since been considered settled? That's clearly true. Uh, Much of this stuff has been settled for almost a century, and it's going to create a tremendous amount of uncertainty. There's a reason, fundamentally, why the Supreme Court has not decided that the federal tax law is unconstitutional for more than 100 years. And the reason was that the last time they did it, which was the McComber case back in 1920, uh, they got a lot of backlash. People said, you don't understand what you're doing. Eventually, the court narrowed that opinion as much as they possibly could, essentially, to its facts. And Congress started doing all kinds of things that were inconsistent with that without the, when the court approved all of these things. And since then, they've never, even though they've been asked many times, they never ruled that the federal tax law is unconstitutional simply because, I mean, they can obviously interpret the statute in various ways, but if they make a mistake, the Congress can fix that. If they ruled that something is unconstitutional, you need a constitutional amendment to fix that, and that's impossible. So therefore, that creates the kind of havoc that cannot be reversed by Congress or anybody else. Uh, In some of these cases, possibly there is a fix uh, or a potential fix because Congress could, for example, 
uh, changed the law to say that LLCs, for example, are deemed to be corporations for tax purposes, and therefore they have to pay corporate tax uh, regardless. And that, that would be a massive hit too, and would actually raise a lot of people's taxes. But nevertheless, that at least means that that income will be taxable. But you know, in many, many other situations, it's hard to see uh, how Congress can fix the situation and make this uh, you know, not a realization event. You also wrote in your brief that this situation is going to disproportionately benefit taxpayers with the resources to take advantage of it, i.e. big companies and rich people. Uh, quote, a victory for the Moors will undermine the fundamental purpose of the 16th Amendment to allow Congress to tax all incomes. A constitutionally imposed realization requirement creates the specter that only some income will be subject to tax. Of course, those who derive their income from their own labor will invariably continue to pay. Does this case come down to a fairness issue in your view? I mean, would ruling for the Moors have the effect of slanting things in favor of uh, rich people and big companies? I mean, the truth is the tax code is already favorable to rich people and big companies. Warren Buffett famously says that he pays less tax than his secretary. If you earn a wage, there's not that much that you can do about it if you're an employee. You get a W-2, you get your taxes withheld from your wages, you file your taxes on April 15th, you get a refund maybe without interest from the government, and that's basically it. Uh, there's not that much that you can do about it. If you're rich and you have investment income, you get taxed at a very least at a lower rate. Uh, but if you hold assets and they appreciate in value, which is what most of this is about, you don't get tax until realization. Uh, and if realization means that you have to actually sell the asset and put the money in your packet, pocket, there are lots and lots of ways in which you can avoid that. Uh, and the Congress over a century tried to close many of these loopholes by creating all of these provisions that we're talking about. Uh, and all of those could be undermined if the court rules for the Moors. So we're at the stage now where all the briefs on both sides have been filed. The court is set to hear oral arguments in December. This is obviously a, a, a very speculative thing at this point, but what is your best sense right now of what the court will ultimately do? Can, can they rule narrowly just on the provisions of this case without huge broader consequences, or is there a real possibility that this is going to end up in a lot of upheaval? So obviously there's a possibility because the reality is that four justices granted the third petition, or at least four justices, we know there were at least four uh, granted a third petition as it was written, and as it was written, it has all of these broad implications. Uh, now, there are possibilities, and various amici have suggested various possibilities to narrow the ruling. One uh, possibility, for example, is that they can say it doesn't apply to corporate taxes at all, because they, they held that the corporate tax is not an income tax before the 16th Amendment, back way back. Uh, so they can say, okay, that doesn't apply to guilty, subpart F, any of these corporate provisions, that's one way, but it still would apply to all the individual provisions or the partnership, for example, and so on. They could start to narrow it in some other ways. They could say, this is something that the taxpayers are urging, that in situations where the taxpayer has control over uh, an entity, they can uh, make them distribute a dividend. They say the Moors did not have control. That narrows it to some extent. Again, in a lot of these situations, there is no possibility of control. I mean, you you invest in the bond of a company, you don't control that company, you can't make them pay you interest, etc., etc. So there are some possibilities for a narrower ruling, but it's hard to see a ruling that will not have bad implications. And part of the issue is you have to separate the holding from what the court says. The holding can be maybe crafted narrowly, but then it's also a question of what kind of language do they use. And if they have language that can be read more broadly, then taxpayers will use that language to read it more broadly, if it's to their advantage. 
That was Reuven Aviona, a law professor at the University of Michigan, speaking with Michael Rappaport. And that's it for today's podcast. You can find up-to-the-minute news and the latest tax and accounting developments at our website, news.bloombergtax.com. The website, once again, is news.bloombergtax.com. Today's Talking Tax is produced by myself, David Schultz. Naomi Jagoda is our editor from Washington. I'm David Schultz. Thanks for listening. Hello, podcast listeners. If you don't already know On the Merits, our weekly podcast devoted to legal and government news, it's a show that features the very best of Bloomberg Law and Bloomberg Government, newsrooms that boast among the largest number of credentialed journalists in D.C. When you listen to On the Merits, you'll hear about the groundbreaking developments in the courts, in Congress, and in the alphabet soup of federal agencies that run Washington and our nation. Our show is by and about legal and government policy nerds, and we say that lovingly. It's a nerd's eye view of what professionals in the legal and government space need to know. But you do not have to be a nerd to listen. Check out our show on the merits and find new episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find our archive of shows at news.bloomberglaw.com slash podcasts.